Welcome to another episode of SG Explained. We are continuing the streak of uh, pretty heavy episodes today. But before we do that, let's get some lighthearted banter in. How are you guys doing? All good. <laughs> <laughs> that was the least convincing all good I've heard in a long time, Yen. Like, I hope you guys don't take this the wrong way. But every week that I meet you guys, I feel like I'm just sitting with a couple of librarians. <laughs> Well, actually, to be very fair, because the source material is usually for NLB, you're not actually wrong. Love to NLB and like love to research, you know. That's but why. It's like, that's why. Yeah, my my weekly CCA meeting with my librarian pals. Definitely <laughs> check out our episode on National Library Board. <laughs> We've never done a plug right during the non-plug sections. This episode actually deals with, I think, one of the more important topics in our history. And the truth is, we've been skirting around this topic across uh-huh. a lot of episodes episodes because frankly i was a bit scared of doing this episode right how do we do it in a way doesn't put us in jail yes that right man but also stays sort of objective right because i think the way that we look back at this chapter in our past actually uh, varies depending on who you talk to i think that the official narrative exists and for the most part we'll see later on that there's a lot of reasons why that's the official narrative but mm-hmm. it's not an unchallenged narrative right and oh so yeah today, for sure Today we're going to stay as objective as possible, but it's actually a very exciting topic and uh, I'm excited for us to get in. But before we start, I actually am flipping the sequence of events and we're going to start with a pop quiz. What? <laughs> I'm going headstrong, all right? Today's topic is about communism in Singapore, but actually I realized that the definition of communism varies uh, depending on who you talk to as well, right? So I wanted to get you guys' You know, just off the cuff takes. How do you define communism? What's your view of communism? And you know what? Actually, the the truth is, there's no correct answer here. So I get no points, like essentially, is what you're saying. There's a, there's an answer for getting as close as possible to the uh, right Okay, answer. okay, yeah. okay. Yeah. Uh, when have we ever gotten any sort of points for doing a pop quiz? <laughs> we do. I give you guys points. I'll say like half point. I always say like half point or one point, you know, but this one is like a university 20 point question, you know, like 20 marks, please define communism in like, then they give you like 10 lines to write and you're like, hmm, okay. Just to loosely misquote Karl Marx that the labors of one man is not the profit of another. Okay, interesting. I I mean, I think you're, you're not far off. Mian, what about you? I think the first word that comes to mind is equality and i'm probably gonna be shot for that because it's it's as if like what we have now isn't equal but that's not my point it's just like like cookie cutter like for me i'm I'm getting a lot of different keywords and it's just like cookie cutter equality Mm. mundane (laughs) i think mian's picture in the head is that like everyone lives in communal farms and you all grow, grow crops and then you like pass it to each other. Let me give you a textbook definition just mm-hmm. so that we can stay factual. So communism is often set in juxtaposition to capitalism, right? And in capitalism, basically you're rewarded for effort, innovation, uh, etc., cetera, uh, and taking risk most importantly. But in capitalism, risk is of course tied to capital. 
So the more capital you put out there, and if you get a return on it, then you accrue the benefits. But this also means that potentially workers who don't have much capital, their risks are deemed as much more reduced, and therefore their rewards are deemed as much more reduced, right? Communism basically says, hey, that's not really fair, because workers are actually the main reason why everything is moving, right? So it's a socioeconomic order centered around common ownership of the means of production, distribution, and exchange. And it means that products are allocated equally to everyone in society. Hey, keyword equally. Yeah. Hell decides to only grow carrots. Everybody gets a carrot. Well, it's not as simple as that. It's like you have to be told, like, hey, you're making carrots. So that everyone has a share of carrots. It also All involves right. the absence of social classes, money. And here's the important thing: it also involves the absence of the state. But no communist system in practice has ever gotten to the point because they've always accepted and Marx kind of talked about this, right? That you need a state to transition it, right? So mm-hmm. sort of a central authority to transition you from capitalism to communism, but mm-hmm. no central authority ever gives up their power, right? And so you always end up with sort of imperfect communist systems. Mm-hmm. That's where a lot of the challenges happen. You will, you will look at like different, different versions of this as well. Like there's always like Maoism, which is like mm-hmm. more socialist in nature. But they all try to do that same thing of trying to move away from central governance into mm-hmm. the, the people really just ordering themselves. And here's one key tenet of communism or rather communist efforts, which is that they fundamentally believe that in order to achieve this, there needs to be a revolution. There is no way that the current state will facilitate a communist uh, means. And therefore, you have to you know, be subversive. You have to sort of cause conflict or, or disruption on the current system in order to cause communism, which is an important theme that we'll see later on as we see communists try to play out in Malaya and Singapore. Let's start with that, right? Let's start with the origins of communism in Malaya in general. So the rise of communism generally begins during the Japanese occupation. We're talking about like 1942 to 45 when many students in Chinese schools were strong supporters of the Malayan Communist Party guerrilla movement. You know, there's this joke that I always play with my Chongqing friends. I always call them communists. What? <laughs> you don't do that with your Chongqing friends? Actually, I don't have that many Chongqing no, friends. No, sorry, yet. I was from a neighborhood school and we don't make crude jokes like that. There's this legendary pond in Chongqing. Or is it Taunan? No, it's in Chongqing. And I always tell them that they bury the communist treasure underneath oh their pond. That's besides the point. Shout out to my friend Chinwei who was from Chongqing. Uh, <laughs> the Malayan Communist Party or the MCP uh, was officially the Communist Party of Malaya, the CPM. Uh, and that was a Marxist-Leninist and anti-imperialist communist party which was active in Malaysia from 1930 to 1989. Following the communist revolution in Russia in 1917, uh, the Bolsheviks established the Communist International or the Comintern, as uh, we know it in history books, with the aim of forming similar communist political systems abroad. The Malayan Communist Party was set up in 1930, although communists had already been active since the mid-1920s. While the Comintern tried to exert influence on the MCP, for the most part, however, it was the Chinese Communist Party that exercised a significant influence over it. This was a serious issue in the context of like the raging Cold War later on, with proxy battles you know, being fought in many countries for political influence and dominance. And you actually see the ripples to this very day. I mean, Ukraine, it's not as direct as it used to be, but you're starting to see the after effects of it. In the age of rising nationalism and nation states, no government or people would allow the existence of a militant political movement that was beholden or obligated to a foreign government or any political entity for that matter, as this would undermine and compromise national independence and 
sovereignty. The MCP was responsible for the creation of both the Malayan People's Anti-Japanese Army and the Malayan National Liberation Army. The party actually led resistance efforts against the Japanese occupation of Malaya during World War II. The British colonial authorities accepted the MCP's standing offer of military cooperation after a long period of trying to clamp it down prior to the Japanese invasion. If you think about the Taliban in Afghanistan, right? The Taliban actually was trained by the Americans to fight against Al-Qaeda. And yeah. so the, the Americans actually went in, gave them equipment, gave them tools and resources. And Militarized the Taliban, them. And then the Taliban became the, the power that they are, right? Somewhat mm-hmm. similarly, the British did the same thing for the MCP, right? The British initially tried to clamp down the MCP and then said, oh no, the Japanese are coming. Yeah, we'll give you all our tactics. We'll give you some weapons, right? Please help us fight against the Japanese. The enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's pretty crazy. On 15 December 1941, Slightly after the Japanese invaded Malaya, all left-wing political prisoners were released. From 20th December, the British military began to train party members in guerrilla warfare at the hastily established 101st Special Training School, or known as the 101st STS in Singapore. About 165 MCP members were trained before the British defences collapsed. These fighters, scantily armed and equipped by the hard-pressed British, hurriedly dispersed and attempted to harass the occupying army. Now, just before Singapore fell to the Japanese on 15th February 1942, the party began organizing armed resistance in the state of Johor. In March, this force was dubbed the Malayan People Anti-Japanese Army, or the MPAJA, and began sabotage and ambushes against the Japanese. The Japanese responded with reprisals against Chinese civilians. These reprisals, coupled with increasing economic hardship, caused large numbers of Malayan Chinese to flee the cities. They became squatters at the forest margins, where they became the main source of recruits, food, and other assistance from the MPAJA. Now, the MPAJA consolidated the support by providing protection. So it's a almost symbiotic relationship. It's, it's a vicious cycle because as the communists attacked the Japanese, Japanese retaliated by going against innocent Chinese people. And mm-hmm. then these Chinese people then joined the communists right, because they were anti-Japanese as a result of it. Exactly. It's not so much ideological lines as it was like who's being persecuted, right? They just fight against uh, for their own freedom. But it also formed this very core identity of being Chinese in mm. the region, right? Because that was how you found support and that was how you also created an us versus them, right? The them it's being the Japanese. a community identity sort of thing, you know what I'm saying? That was during the Japanese occupation. However, after the Japanese surrendered, the CPM and the MPAJA quickly consolidated the position by setting up committees to run the local administration in the towns under their charge until the British troops returned. So this is the first sign of like actual political roots ingrained into the order and structure of our society. The British allowed the CPM to operate openly and also provided MPAJ guerrillas with money in recognition for their efforts during the war. So bounties are paid and there's this whole like, you know what, uh, for the time being, you're in charge. Here you go. Keys mm-hmm. to the kingdom. Uh, after some time, the MCP initiated a war of national liberation against the British Empire. (laughs) During this period, the MCP also engaged in intimidation. This included assassination. (laughs) Okay, like, that means to go and find people and fully play out some, like, three kingdoms shit. They include assassination of civilians with the aim of coercing material, information, and silence. So these are, like, 
your typical intimidation tactics employed during that time. Very heavy-handed. After the departure of British colonial forces from the Federation of Malaya, the party fought in a third guerrilla campaign against the Malaysian government in an attempt to create a socialist state before surrendering and dissolving in, you'll never guess it, 1989. Just two years before I was born. Well, I could have been, I could have been communist. This is where we'll start our tracing of the communist quote-unquote threat. I mean, the reason why we wanted to play out the history of the MCP is because they had a huge role in influencing the politics within Singapore. So the yeah. MCP was looking at the overall Malayan region, but there were communist elements in Singapore and people who were affected by the Japanese war, right? And so you'll actually realize that there's no party that said, we are the Communist Party of Singapore. There's no such thing. But the Malayan Communist Party sort of influenced and created roots in Singapore through a lot of their efforts. Especially because they got a taste of it, right? Like, Imagine given the keys to the kingdom and just being like, like, okay, I guess we're in charge now and open support for it as well. It's very hard for you to like just take it away once you give someone a taste of that juicy, juicy governance. Everyone gets drunk on power. That's my belief. Not me though. See, like that's the first sober. sign of someone possibly getting drunk on power. Ask any of my team members, am I drunk on power? <laughs> okay, like, don't, don't ask them, don't ask them. Maybe they might say yes. After the war, as Singapore came under the British colonial rule again, some of these radical students who had participated in the MCP's guerrilla campaigns became leaders of Communist United Front activities in Chinese schools, old boys, and clan associations, and many Chinese community organizations. See, Chongqing, Chongqing, I told you already, bro. Like, Chongqing <laughs> is one of those schools. You're not wrong, you're not wrong. <laughs> in the 1950s, pro-communist and Chinese chauvinists enjoyed widespread support and loyalty within the Chinese community, which accounted for 75% of the population. Knowing how dear Chinese education, language, and culture were to the Singaporean Chinese, the communists exploited these issues to the hilt to win the support of the Chinese-speaking community in the 1950s and 1960s. By appealing to these communal issues, the MCP, a mainly ethnic Chinese political organization, rallied the Chinese miracle students, Nanyang University students, and the majority Chinese-speaking community against the authorities. You know, as I say all of this, I want you to consider... Does that sound very different from what's possibly happening today? You mean, wait, NTU students are radicalized? <laughs> I beg to differ. If you remember PM's NDR speech, he talked about the risk of propaganda. Wait, what? Can you refresh my memory? Sorry, I was clearly like not thinking about that part of the speech, as you can tell. Throw back to our LGBTQIA plus episode. <laughs> <laughs> She's part of us now. She knows how to plug. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Plugging, plugging the episodes that she knows. PM Lee spent a, a huge part of the rally, especially in the Chinese language section, to talk about the risk of external influence, mm. right? And specifically, like, WhatsApp messages, which are actually, if you trace the origin, comes from foreign parties. So this is exactly why communism has always been a big concern, right? Because of foreign influence through proxies. But in this time, basically, there wasn't that much of a defense. The massive support gained by pro-communists derived importantly from the British colonial government's refusal to accept Chinese educational qualification for employment in the civil service. And you have to remember, Singapore is still an immigrant country. Still a lot of the talent or the, a lot of the labor is coming from overseas still. There's not much of a, a core yet. And so the antipathy between the British government and the pro-communist Chinese drew out and caused many other events, including bus worker strikes and actually the uh, rebuttal against conscription of use by the British government. Are you talking about the Hockley bus riots? So there were many strikes and then eventually Hockley, the bus strike became a riot. Oh. I mean, the Hockley bus riot is known because it's a riot, but there were many strikes before that. 
Ah, that's something I didn't know. Eventually caused the Chinese Middle High School riots in 1956, which includes your favorite school, Elliot, Chongqing High School. Chongqing! So let's, let's talk about this, right? So in 1956, after Lim Yu-Hawk replaced David Marshall as chief minister, he began to take tough measures. He was, you know, one of those like really disciplined, focused uh, ministers, and he wanted to suppress communist activities with the support of the British governor, and commissioner of police. So in September of 1956, he deregistered and banned two pro-communist organizations. They were the Singapore Women's Association, kind of weird, but okay, uh, and the Chinese Musical Gong Society, even weirder. Gong? Did you say the Gong Society? Yes. <laughs> Apparently, this was a front for communist activity. Yo, I didn't even know we had a Chinese Musical Gong Society. By the time we release this episode, it'll be too late, but I went to watch the LKY musical, and actually, this is a very common thing for communist organizations to do, or rather, this was sort of a, a, a thing that was shown, which was actually the communist activities were done under the front of some of these like demure uh, organizations. Yeah. Oh, a good hiding yeah. spot is what you're saying, yeah. right? Which is actually very much part of the communist modus operandus. No, you put a gong like, and like, it's ominous, dude. <laughs> At the same time, the Singapore Chinese Middle School Student Union was also dissolved. And this was where things became difficult because when Lim Yu-Hawk announced the closure due to its alleged communist activities, they also arrested four student leaders and expelled no. 142 students. And so in protest, students gathered and camped at Chungcheng High School and the Chinese high school, sat in over two weeks, organized meetings and held demonstrations. Wow. And on 24th October, the government issued an ultimatum for the schools be vacated. As the deadline approached, instead of vacating, riots instead started at the Chinese high school and spread to other parts of the island. Of course, the government had to take action. The police entered the school and cleared the students using tear gas. And these students then headed to the city where they overturned cars and damaged traffic lights and also threw stones and bottles. Over the next five days, 13 people were killed and more than 100 were injured. Students be doing some crazy shit back in the day, guys. Yeah. Like, I mean, you have to remember that back in these days, Singapore was a very young nation, like quite yeah. literally in terms of demographics, right? So a lot of people were in school and a lot of people after World War II may have delayed even going to school, right? So actually mm. they may be older and be back in school trying to actually get their, their degree or get their the certificates, but at the same time, they also riled up from the political consequences of the war. Oh yeah, they grew up in the war, you know, like the kind of growth and maturity that you have by going through something at that national scale probably exposes you to a lot of like very hard to grasp concepts at a younger age. And if you've only grown up with violence being the solution, quotation marks, then perhaps like that would have been your first thought to stage violence. This is where I feel it really gets interesting because communism started to seep into the PAP. And one of the key theaters for conflict with the communists was the road to self-rule in which the PAP had notoriously co-opted pro-communist elements to build its electoral base. So since its formation, the PAP was divided into the Lee Kuan Yew camp, the Akong camp versus the left-wing camp led by Lim Chin Siong. Now, the common ground of anti-colonialism and independence of Singapore was the basis for the cooperation between the two camps. And the differences in their mass bases also encouraged such cooperation. During the early years, the left-wing camp mainly commanded support from the Chinese masses, rural people, 
and trade unions, while support for Lee Kuan Yew's camp was mainly found in the English-educated community. And with the support of the working class, the PAP won the third most seats in the 1955 election and formed the main opposition. Now, in 1959, this is four years later, with the support of the trade unions, the PAP won the election and formed the government under Lee Kuan Yew. So that is the story that we're all like every Singaporean kid is familiar with. What I did not know was that there was a left wing camp. That's a very bold claim, yeah, that most most Singaporean kids know. I mean, we know that Lee Kuan Yew is like the big dog. With, like stories about Akong. Like literally... It was in the textbook, no? How do people know that like they were not the majority at the start? I think if you go and poll people, right, they are more likely to say like, oh, it's always been the PAP, when actually mm-hmm. that's not actually the truth. Now, here's the catch though. The two camps were ideologically and politically different in nature, obviously. So during its formative years, the left-wing members already showed their dissatisfaction with the policies carried out by Lee Kuan Yew and his failure to fulfill his promises to help secure the release of the left-wing political detainees. And finally, the contentious issue of merger with Malaysia triggered the split within the PAP. The team led by Lim Chin Siong, they co-opted the Lee Kuan Yew's camp because they both wanted independence, independent from the British, right? They didn't want to be ruled under the British because they saw the, the weakness of the British during World War II. They knew that they wanted to self-rule, but the way that they wanted to self-rule was different, right? So Lee Kuan Yew wanted merger, whereas Lim Chin Siong wanted complete yeah, as a metaphor for you guys to kind of make this a little bit easier it's like if I did a YouTube collab with someone it's because like you know before we find our old YouTube channels you do a lot of collabs with other people oh that's okay? true so that so that you guys have your mixed audience bases and you can expose yeah. yourself you, get, you capture a wider audience but once you've collabed enough right you kind of want to go your own way yeah. you have your own thoughts about how to establish your channel and then you're in competition with each other, like That's real competition. That's such a great metaphor, Al. I would complicate the metaphor in one way, right? Which is that from the beginning, Lee Kuan Yew knew that his collab partner was potentially divergent, like extremely divergent from him in terms of like their ideology, their goals, but he still chose to collab because he knew he had to win. The metaphor still holds, my friend. Like, <laughs> let me just say, in the YouTube space, sometimes you collab knowing that someday... This ain't gonna work out, bro. Yeah, man. That's why I bought the WhatsApp messages come through, no? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is where all the scandal come in. It's like, ooh, juicy. We'll notice that we did not call the left-wing camp communists. And this was actually a very important thing. The whole time, people alleged that Lim Chin Siong's scheme were communists. We'll find out later that the history is a bit muddled in the sense of whether you can with full declaration called them communists, there was suspicion from the British and later on Malaysia, which you know, me and we'll talk about in a bit, uh, that, that actually, you know what? Lim Chin Siong's team is unabashedly communist. And that was where the complication came in. Scandal. This is the WhatsApp message leaks. Now, on 27th May, 1961, Tunku Abdul Rahman, who was the Prime Minister of the Federation of Malaya, suggested the creation of a new Malaysia state consisting of the Federation of Malaya, Singapore, Sarawak, North Borneo, as well as Brunei. And the reactions towards the merger within the PAP were pretty divided. Now, the merger with Malaysia was supported by the Lee Kuan Yew camp as a means of assuring Singapore's future security and prosperity, while opposed by the left-wing camp as the merger was seen as an attempt to wipe out the left-wing forces in Singapore. This is the part where, you know, you start to see like 
your current collab partner, right, reach out to other YouTube channels. And you're like, dude, I thought it's like, like yo, exactly, exactly. It's like, yeah, I love this analogy, actually. Because it's too real for me. You must understand that this is a lived experience, okay? Now, the rupture within the PAP was widened by the Hong Lim and Anson by-elections in 1961. Displeased with the PAP government's refusal to abolish the Internal Security Council, or ISC, uh, and the refusal to back down the merger plan, and their refusal to release the remaining political detainees, PAP left-wingers abandoned support for their own candidates candidates in favour of Ong Ing Guan in Hong Lim and David Marshall in Anson, which then led to the PAP's defeat in the two by-elections. Bro, this is like, I cross you, you cross me, right? It's like, <laughs> yeah, bro, I, this you is... stab me first, so I stab you back. <laughs> it's, I stab you before you can stab me for a moment, because <laughs> like, uh, it's like, you don't like me already, right? Never mind, I show you my cards. I don't friend you anymore. Yeah, it's that kind. Literally. Essentially, essentially. Now, after the Anson by election, the left-wing camp planned to oust Lee Kuan Yew from the party, but they worried that their actions would cause the British to hold up plans for Singapore's independence. And as a result, the left-wingers had a meeting with Lord Sakirk, the British Commissioner General at Eden Hall, woo, sneaky, which was later known as the Eden Hall Tea Party, not subtle at all, to maintain control after the overthrow of Lee Kuan Yew's government. If people say Singapore's politics is boring, right? Well, this is really where you have to go. <laughs> yeah, but you have to dramatize it. You have to dramatize it, honestly. On 20th July 1961, Lee Kuan Yew called an emergency meeting of the Legislative Assembly to vote on the motion of confidence in the government. 26 assemblymen voted for the government and 24, including 13 of the PAP left-wingers, either abstained or voted against the motion of confidence. This is basically Lee Kuan Yew's way of calling out like who is with me and who is Who's not. with me and who yeah. is yep. This portion of the story like turns me on. <laughs> This is glee. This is like glee if you think about it, right? Just mind-blowingly, like, uh, you wonder why I've all called you here today? And everyone's like, yes, so what do you ask of us? Wow. And then he says, just a vote of confidence, my friends. And then suddenly like, oh, oh, we've been caught. Uh, so <laughs> the 13 PAP left-wingers who abstained from voting were then expelled from the no. PAP, okay? Yes, yes way. Um, the expelled members, including Lim Chin Siong, Sidney Woodhull, and Fong Sui Suan, then proceeded to form an opposition <laughs> party known as the Barisan Socialists. It's like, you can't kick me out. I'm forming my own thing. <laughs> We're going to go for our own tea party. See y'all later. <laughs> in the dramatization, Lim Chin Siong shakes his fist and goes, it's not the last you've seen me, Lee Kuan Yew. <laughs> and then they go and do their own thing. And after the split, right... Uh, 35 branch committees out of 51 and 19 of 23 paid organizing secretaries of the PAP went over to the Barisan. So here we are seeing that schism uh, and the final separation between uh, the internal distrust within the PAP. The Barisan was officially inaugurated on 17 September 1962 with Lim Chin Siong as its Secretary General and Dr. Lee Siu Cho as Chairman. Its founding slogan was, quote, genuinely full internal self-government through merger with Malaya and it shared the same aim with the PAP, the creation of an independent, democratic, non-communist, socialist Malaya. So this is very interesting, uh, especially that, that term non-communist, yeah. socialist Malaya. So it's trying to adapt some, some parts of the manifesto. Like and be very clear that it's not communist. 
right? It's basically saying, stop calling us communists. We're not communists. That's what the kid's saying. We're, we're socialists, man. The more you try to tell someone you're not something, <laughs> it's like... I know where this is going. Yeah, I am. <laughs> you know me, but you don't know my story. I'm actually not communist, okay? The main objectives of the new party were presented in four statements. The first one was to eradicate colonialism and set up a united national independent state comprising the Federation of Malaya and Singapore. So here's where it gets confusing, right? Because if you recall just before this, one of the key reasons why they wanted to split the PAP was because the PAP was insistent on merger. Yeah. But over here, they're actually saying, you know what, it's fine, we'll go ahead with this. The reason for it is actually goes back to the core aim, which is independent. They recognize that there's no sort of merger with Malaya, the British were actually unlikely to give them independence. They would have deemed them mm. not ready to be independent. Actually, they were using this as a front in order to get the British to give them independence. It's a bargaining chip. La. And then later on, they would basically pull out. Mm, they knew that the British were happy to back Lee Kuan Yew because there was a merger plan. So if you want that same bargaining chip on the table, you got to be like, Yeah, the difference is that in this case, they would be doing this without Lee Kuan Yew. So they have a bit more control over their choices. So that's the the first core statement, right? The second one is to establish a democratic government of Malaya based on universal adult suffrage of all those who are born in or owe their allegiance to Malaya. So this is a very nationalist sort of narrative that they're trying to out there. The third statement is to bring into being an economic system that will endure a prosperous, stable, and just society. Also, this is maybe one of the, the statements that may have invited some questions, right? Because it's quite ambiguous what this economic system is and what do they mean by stable and just. It's choice words. It's like not what you say, but how you say it, which is the basis of like marketing, no? Well, also politics, right? <laughs> this is House of Cards. This is House of Cards, 100%. <laughs> Um, the, the last tenant that they wanted to uphold was to mobilize all sections of the people for the building of Malayan nation. And that to me is the most socialist statement mm-hmm. that I've ever heard because it really is about trying to get people as the building block of the nation. Tunku Abdul Rahman was worried about the impact of Singapore's leftist influence in a unified Malaysia. He demanded that Singapore's political opposition be arrested as a condition of merger. That, that's a crazy thing. It's like, oh yeah, come on in. Uh, just imprison these dudes first. Um, the PAP obviously was hesitant about the arrest as they could damage the PAP's popularity in Singapore. Uh, and in 1962, the Malayans insisted on the apprehension of opposition leaders in Singapore and warned that they would pull out from the Internal Security Council if their requests were ignored. So more or less a strong arm uh, in, in, in this uh, political schema. However, the British officials in Singapore opposed such oppressive measures and argued that evidence had to be presented before arrests could be made. Following that, in May 1962, a joint report was produced by Singapore and Malaya and presented to the Malayan, Singapore and British governments. The report advocated for an intensification of efforts to expose the communists, deny them facilities, culminating in the detention of those shown to be communist conspirators. Dot, 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 with Lim Chin Siong at the top of the list. This is dramatic. Um, the Earl of Selkirk disagreed with the report's recommendations by highlighting that the Singapore Special Branch have virtually failed to identify directly any communist threats during the last three years. And opined that Lee Kuan Yew is quite clearly attracted by the prospect of wiping out his main political opposition before the next general elections. 
therefore cautioning against using the public service security ordinance for political rather than security reasons. This to me is juice. Yeah. This is basically one of the the key data points that people use to talk about how yeah. some of the actions taken later on was more political rather than uh, security oriented. As in, it's something that we talk about a lot, right? Like protecting the nation's interests. Uh, that narrative has been used to justify a lot of things that we do. I mean, not, not, not just about communism, right? But like a lot of times for many of the issues, sometimes you will hear people say like, oh, it's under the guise of security when actually there's a lot more nuances to it. But in this particular case, that was the justification and people call, called it out, lah, essentially. However, the Brunei Revolt of 8 December 1962, which was an insurrection in the British Protectorate of Brunei by opponents of its monarchy, and its proposed inclusion in the Federation of Malaysia gave the PAP a quote-unquote heaven-sent opportunity to justify the arrests, right? Like you look at, you look at something ha- happening next door and go like, ooh, I don't think you want that to happen to us. And they say, all right, cool. Here's the, here's the green light. Uh, the Barisan's open support of the Brunei revolt gave the PAP a legitimate excuse that the arrests were there uh, to prevent possible communist subversion and safeguard the security and safety in Singapore. Selkirk was also uncomfortable with the presence of the Communist United Front members continuing to work in Singapore in the light of Indonesian activities in Borneo. Thus, he repositioned his stance and wrote to the Secretary of State of Colonies, advocating for prompt roundup of communists in Singapore and estimated around 70 arrestees to be apprehended. What a what a crazy turn of events, mm-hmm. right? Like that's when we look at our neighbors and go like, yeah, how 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 the cookie crumbles. This is also why Brunei is not part of Malaysia. Brunei originally was supposed to be part of most, was part of the plan, yeah, yeah, part of the merger, but they they backed off because of this. And it's also interesting to know that the British actually were in line with some of their actions before were pretty weak handed in their approach to communists. They wanted to be very by the book, right, and mm. so. Rather Malaya, the Tunku and PAP Singapore, the Kuan Yu were basically both saying, actually, this is a big issue. Like, we can't be independent if this threat continues to lie in dormant, right? Or continues to lie subversively and potentially uproot all our efforts. And uh, later on, we'll actually see that Malaya was very clear, you know, we have the upper hand. We have, you know, more, more land. We have more resources. And so if you want to be merged with us, got to really make sure you weed this out. Don't come to this relationship with your baggage, mate. You know what I'm saying? We've basically painted the problem. We've shown the peak of communist efforts in Singapore and maybe some of the alleged threats that, that lay at weight through vehicles like the Barisan Socialists. But what happened next? What did they do about it? We all know that Singapore is not a communist country. Well, we'll find out right after the break. It's crazy to think that we're in season five of the SG Explained podcast and you, the listener, have been a great part of that experience. If you like what we've been doing over the last few seasons and you want to support some independent podcasters, here are three ways that you can do so. The first is to subscribe and that's by just clicking the subscribe button or follow button on any of the platforms you're listening to us on. The second is to share. Share our content, our episodes with people that you think would enjoy learning about the Singapore identity and challenging some of the preconceived notions that they may have. And finally, directly support us by clicking on the anchor link in the description area where you can make a small contribution that helps us support some of the costs of producing these great podcasts. Thank you again for being part of the SJ Explained family and we look forward to making many more great episodes for you. 
And we're back from the break. So Okay, what the next 10 episodes of Kin? <laughs> <laughs> you know, at this point, you may be feeling a bit depressed that Singapore has gone through so much, but don't worry. There is, well, the next the next part is not the light at the end of the tunnel. It's kind of... <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> I was going to look at, look at the script. I was like, dude, the next part is not. We're still going into a spiral. Well, we're going to spiral a bit and then we'll get out. All right. So the next part is actually Operation Cold Star. Now, if you've grown up in Singapore and you've heard the controversies that make us up, Operation Cold Star definitely falls on that list. It's a very, very controversial part of our history. It talks about political strong arming, but you know, we're gonna go through it and we're gonna try again, try as much as possible to stay objective here. The origins of Operation Cold Star actually come off the events that happened in the Brunei Revolt. Uh, at this point there was commitment to round up the communists, but now the question was who should weed them out and who should lay claim to their arrest and who should be arrested? Because the truth is, it's not just in Singapore that communist activities were happening. We talked about the MCP in Malaya, and actually there were threats even all across the Federation. So there were several back and forth between the PAP, Tunku, and the British on who should be responsible for what. The PAP, of course, wanted the British to do everything, but the British was like, hey, we're, we're kind of going to hands off soon, so it's all on you. Uh, the PAP then said, Tunku, can you take some claim because you want this? And Tunku was like, no, this has to be you uh, before you come in here. I don't want to deal with your domestic politics. And this got to the point where the Tunku basically claimed to be better off without Singapore in the Federation. They were actually very clear. We don't need a Chinese majority state to complicate issues in a Malay majority Federation. But at the same time, they, I mean, and I learned this from the LKY musical, at the same time, they wanted Singapore to be essentially the financial hub of the federation, right? They wanted Singapore to be their profit center because, and this is from the musical, the Chinese are better at making money. There was a financial aspect to it, there's an economic aspect to it, but at the end of the day, they can live without, you know, they don't really need the economic uh, cash cow if they can continue without sort of political risk. But uh, eventually everyone is willing to compromise and all parties agree to proceed with a finalized list of arrests and this is the list that essentially became Operation Cold Star. Lee opted for Operation Cold Star to happen on 2nd February 1963 before the Chinese New Year celebrations so that this would dampen any adverse reaction because he suspected that if people wanted to revolt, they'll think about their Chinese New Year dinners. They'd be like, hmm, maybe I'll wait. Operation Cold Star commenced at 0215 hours on 2nd February 1963 where the police and special branch forces gathered at Johor before heading out to Singapore at 0315 hours Damn. to round up suspected communist sympathizers. A total of 113 people were arrested, including 31 in the political sphere, 40 trade union leaders, 18 from the education sphere, 11 from cultural circles, and seven members of rural committees of hawkers. Nine people only identified as members of MCP and 14 others. Among those arrested from the political spheres were 24 members of the Barisan Socialists. These arrests were defended by invoking the PSSO, the Public Service Security Ordinance, with claims that the arrestees had the long-term aim of the Malayan Communist Party to infiltrate and take over left-wing political parties, workers' associations, and trade unions in the colony to foment violent unrest. A representative from the PAP as Rajaratnam justified the operation by stating that action was taken not because they are communists, but because the danger of subversion and violence by communists in aid of this alien intervention. So again, they were saying this is not meant to be political, 
is because you are violent and you're subversive. You are using means that are outside of the terms of engagement in our political work. So this is, again, it goes back to the reason why communists were always considered controversial. Use a very particular term here, which is alien intervention. So it's still a very like us kind of mentality. It's like we're, we're trying to weed out those who are being influenced by external forces. So the Internal Security Council stated that those arrested were hardcore organizers and their collaborators of the communist conspiracy in Singapore believed that the armed struggle remains a weapon to be employed whenever the opportunity arises. Now you may be asking what were some of these armed struggles? These were basically all the strikes that we talked about. Right, so the bus worker strikes, the, the Chinese high school strikes. There were multiple strikes happening and there were incidents of violence, right? So people setting vehicles aflame and all this sorts of stuff. There was always suspicion that these were tied to bars and socialists or the communists within bars and socialists. And that's why there were some of these things happening, right? Operation Cold Star. Operation Cold Star almost paralyzed the Barisan because of the detention of its major leaders, including Lim Chin Xiao. However, remaining Barasan leaders did not give up their struggle. On 22nd April 1963, as a hurrah against this, Lee Siu Cho and remaining Barasan activists launched a city hall battle. <gasps> they marched from the Barasan's headquarters in Victoria Street to the steps of City Hall to protest the mass arrest in February and presented a petition to the Prime Minister in protest against the ill treatment of the detainees. The protest was put down on seven party leaders, including Lee Siu Cho were arrested. I will never look at City Hall the same way again. <laughs> so yeah. much was happening. The stretch from Victoria Street to City Hall not that long. <laughs> <laughs> That's why they can walk. La. That's why. It's still an expensive grant, like $6, you know, but like you'll get there. Here's a key defense. Although admitting that they adopted communist tactics for Oof. the anti-colonial cause, because at that time, such tactics would gather mass support, Lim Chin Siang refuted the communist label attached to him and the Barisan. And this actually is, is basically congruent with what S. Rajaratnam was saying. He's saying, we're not arresting you because you're communists. We're arresting you because you're using subversion and Communist violence techniques. by communists. And Lim Chin Siang is like, yeah, that's kind of what we did, but we're not communists. Hate the sin, don't hate the sinner, right? No, this is this is why, right? Like, you go against Lee Kuan Yew, bro. He's a lawyer. He's going to use this yeah, against, you. against you. So, so Lim Chin Siang had this famous uh, declaration. He said, let me make it clear. And this is actually an LKY musical. Let me make it clear once and for all that I am not a communist or a communist frontman or for that matter, anybody's frontman. I was an NBA league member. We still actually don't know what NBA league is. I tried to Google, but that doesn't mean that I was a communist. NBA is far from MCP. Study the manifesto of the PA. It was more anti-colonial and more communist in doctrine. Of course, during that time, the largest surviving party in Malaya was MCP and PAP was relatively new. So it was inevitable the thinking was influenced by communism. I mean, he has a point. It's like, he's trying to say like on a spectrum of like communism, right? Obviously I'm more left lah, right? It doesn't mean that I am all the way on the extreme left. I'll give you a good comparison, right? Like I'm born Catholic. So the way I approach like religion in, in this, even after now that I'm not, you know, I'm not really Catholic anymore. I'm more agnostic. But a lot of the ways I think about religion are already framed by the fact that I was born Catholic. I was already indoctrinated in that as my foundation. Mm. Similarly, what he's saying here is that, yo, look, I was in the, like, MCP was a big part of the way I was brought up in the political right. sphere. How can, how can I not have some of those elements influence me? But I am not communist. Mm. I'm, I'm no longer communist by any, by any label. It's just that, well, how, can you, how can you take it out of yeah. me? 
Yeah, yeah. He was never communist. He's like, don't give me that label. I'm just, you know, by circumstance. Yeah, uh, but I think the essence of it, which is why the merger was challenged, why Operation Corsa happened, again, was not about communism itself, but people who were using communist tactics mm-hmm. to subvert and cause violence. That was the whole defense. I mean, now we've basically simplified it and reduced it to, oh, we were going against communists. But actually, very specifically, they were going against people who were using communism as a way to basically encourage violence in society. So it may have been possible that Barisan were merely inspired by successful communist movements to mobilize masses. And there is uncertainty about whether the Barisan was communist controlled or not. Basically, there's a quote that says, it is not clear whether the Barisan is merely a front for the Communist Party and its executive in Singapore, the the town committee, or whether it is a party which is willing to accept communist support Though the ultimate objective did not call for the creation of a communist political system, Mm. this is where the controversy remains up to this day on whether a lot of the efforts were legitimate. We were caught in the storm a little bit, but this is where we get sucked out of that spiral. Now, by 1967, the Barisan had been depleted and its declining fortunes were seen in the contraction of its membership. And within three years, from 1963 to 1966, the number of its branches had shrunk to 33 from 36, with only 22 that were still functioning. Now, in contrast, the PAP maintained its 51 branches throughout the three years. The Barisan boycotted the general elections in 1968 and allowed the PAP to win all 51 seats in the parliament. This is the first time the PAP takes complete control. I mean, I don't know. It just feels like such a loser move. Just me Like if you play and lose, right, you still, you don't lose face. But if you already bow out before the game starts, right, it's just like, you know. Like sometimes very Pisces, you know, you're going to go in and lose, right? Like after. But all, it's an ego no, thing, you know? It's an ego thing. Of course it's an ego thing. But sometimes you'd want to retain your supporters whatever small numbers you have. Imagine you go and play and then you lose very, very jalat, right? Your membership will decrease even more. You will lose support on the ground as well. Like it's a very big thing to try to retain whatever control you have left and maybe rebuild your efforts for the future. My stance is you get up there, you do what you have set out to do because that is what you intended. Run, run, run for election, eh? yeah. Some ways to make a meme, alpha mien and beta l, like just like <laughs> side by side. Now back here, the Barisan returned to contest the 1972 general election. Okay. However, it failed to win any seat in this and subsequent elections. It was clear that the Barisan was no longer in a position to function effectively as a political party. Now, although the Internal Security Act, which succeeded the PSSO, and an efficient Internal Security Department successfully curbed the danger of communist influence, nevertheless, as long as there was the presence of these political groups, not given to observing the rules of democratic political competition. The threat from this sector was far from over. And as asserted by Mr. Lee, and we quote, it will be a grave mistake to believe that these dangerous primeval forces driven by religious and racial feelings cannot erupt again. Wow, this guy. You don't just want to put the on the ground, You want to secure it shut and put it all the way at the back of your cover. It's like, just because it's over today doesn't mean we'll be over forever. Which is why the ISA and the ISD continue. I'll continue from that point, yeah. Now it has a renewed sort of mission around terrorism. 
uh, and foreign threats. It's irrelevant, you know what I'm saying? The whole idea that we've got to protect this at all costs because you cannot be complacent of the fact that peace is, st- yeah, that the peaceful times will always be there. Now, in May 1988, the Barrison was dissolved into the Workers' Party of Singapore to strengthen the opposition and applied for dissolution. The application was denied approval as the Barrison's constitution required all its branches to agree to the dissolution, but none were left. And hence, it was left dormant since. You can't agree to a dissolution if no one's there to agree. <laughs> now, the government of the People's Republic of China established diplomatic relations with the government of Malaysia in 1974. And this gradually reduced the Communist Party of China's support for the CPM. Eventually, the CPM leadership in China began to seek peace terms. And the CPM threat came to a formal end with the signing of the Hatyai Peace Agreement on 2nd December 1989. And after four decades of armed struggle and united front activities, the MCP saw the futility of its efforts and admitted defeat in the jungles, over the airwaves and in the political arena. Now, it failed to win over the hearts and minds of Singaporeans and Malaysians with its secular ideology of constant class struggle, conflict and revolution. And the MCP's cessation of hostilities in 1989 was timely, coinciding with the decline of international communism and the end of the Cold War. And for Singapore, these momentous developments marked the end of an era, putting an end to the serious threat to peace and stability. That's a happy ending, right? Yeah. <laughs> so what are the implications of this? Like, what, what can we learn from a lot of this, right? Um, the implications, we start with this, where Singapore's struggle against communism bequeathed two legacies, right, to the present generation. One is the use of preventive detention laws, including detention without trial, first in the form of the emergency ordinance introduced to counter the communist insurgency in 1948, and subsequently enshrined in the preservation of the public security ordinance of 1955, and later the Internal Security Act, or, you know, the ISA as we all know it, introduced in 1963. Now, there have been calls in Singapore for the ISA to be repealed on the grounds that the communist threat has been eliminated and that these laws have allegedly been abused by the authorities to detain political opponents. However, the government has rebutted these allegations and defended the need for the ISA in view of the ongoing and worsening terrorist threat posed by Al-Qaeda, the Islamic State in Iraq, and Syria, you know, the list goes on. The ISA is set to remain in Singapore's statute books for the foreseeable future. I mean, makes sense, right? Now now it's more geared towards international threats uh, rather than localized radical ones. And sometimes, you know, there, there's some linkages between them, but we're looking externally most of the time. La. I would argue that it's actually the same. I mean, if you think about communism, it was primarily the foreign influence through the MCP and through I guess, some of these united fronts in order to exert their ideology within Singapore. Right? And so you could say the same for extremism, right? Any type of extremism. Sure, that, that, that kind of makes sense. Secondly, the, the opposition to the ISA has also been accompanied by efforts to challenge the established, uh, quote-unquote, Singapore story, right? An account of what happened in the 1950s and the 1960s. The dominant discourse in Singapore is that the MCP from the 1940s through the 1980s, was a violent and subversive organization that posed an existential security threat to Malaysia and Singapore. That it aimed to like seize political power through armed struggle and united front strategy to establish a communist state. This discourse is being challenged, with some former detainees and analysts 
arguing that most of these held in Singapore, especially under Operation Cold Star in 1963, were not communists or involved even with the MCP. This counter-narrative somewhat portrays a group that was vanquished in the political struggle between the 50s and 60s as anti-colonialists who were detained because of their opposition to the PAP. Ironically, the memoirs of top communist leaders such as Chin Ping, the Secretary General of the MCP, Yu Choi Yip, and Feng Chong Pik, uh, aka The Plan, uh, the directors in charge of... Dude, this is like the wrestling so name, bro. Sorry, Fong Chong Pig has a wrestling name. It's the Plen. Okay, like L, no, L, he gotta spell it for them. P L E N. Plen. The Plen. The directors in charge of MCP operations in Singapore, right? Like, so in the top members of these guys, they were directors in charge of the MCP operations in Singapore, as well as other leaders and activists who confirmed the Singapore government's narrative about the threat posed by the MCP and its United Front organization. So they called themselves out, essentially. <laughs> Some people challenge the narrative and they go like, no, that was all us guys. Like, don't try to take away what we tried to do. Even if we go down as the baddies, yeah. Given the MCP's own testimonies, it will be a gargantuan task to argue that it was not a security threat in the 1950s and 60s. Like, the riots actually happened and they were strategically part of the MCP's agenda. That it did not aim to capture political power in Singapore and that its principal United Front organization, uh, the Barisan Socialist, was just an ordinary left-wing political party. The, the crux of the matter is that the MCP did try to capture power in Singapore through subversion and militancy, but they failed as it was effectively countered by the government of the day and rejected by the public at large. So no matter how much you want to valorize the, the efforts, yeah. I think, honestly, I empathize with this. It's like, if you're going to be accused of trying to be subversive, they're owning it, right? They're saying, that's, that's us. No sorries, guys. Like we tried and failed. But now we go yeah, down history. But, yeah, that's our ideas and that's our stance. Don't take it away from us. La. I understand the whole need to challenge narratives and to question how certain ordinances, certain acts are used in Singapore. But sometimes, though, the uh, Occam's razor, right? The simplest explanation mm. is probably the correct one. Uh, and this is sort of like the proof is in the pudding for me. Even if you were to acknowledge that, okay, I mean, Lin Chin Cheng said we're not communists, but he, you know, he caused violence, right? And there were real people who were affected and... Lives were lost, yeah, lives man. Were yeah. lost, right? So I think on that front itself, even without the political data happening behind, I think that's already sort of legitimate grounds for some level of response. But then secondly, of course, looking at it on a more like structural and political level, yeah, if you think about the means in which communists were trying to gain power, not just in Singapore, across the world, right? You don't have to look at just one theater, you can look at across the world. Uh, you see that this is a pattern of behavior that's quite scary, right? And therefore needs sort of uh, defensive action. I, I guess there's this legitimate questions around the ISA, there's legitimate questions around, you know, what's wrong in bringing some of these people back to Singapore. Uh, there have been efforts, so actually one of the things that has happened is that Singapore has relaxed some of its policies around people who were exiled or people who left Singapore, tried to escape and were not allowed back. They've relaxed it mm -hmm. mostly because these people are super old now and they just want to reconnect with their family and they don't really think that communism is a threat anymore. If you try to start communism now, nothing's going to happen. There's still, there's still a lot of trauma, right? Because if you think about it, our founding story is built on this sort of radical move in some ways, right? Mm -hmm. to, to go in, arrest 
detain people, cause potentially the exile of a whole bunch of people. While you know, majority of Singaporeans and majority of people in Singapore were in support of these efforts, because again, if you think about it, they saw their family members and friends die or get hurt in these strikes, mm-hmm. in these communist activities. But at the same time, these are your friends. These are your people who you see in your neighborhood and to see them get you know, arrested or get kicked out causes a lot of issues at the core of our identity. Yes, we're happy we're not communists, but at the same time, like recognizing that our history is based on some very, very critical events. And it's not so straightforward. It wasn't just Lee Kuan Yew operated, decided that he wants to help Singapore become prosperous and that was it. But there was so much that went behind the scenes. There was turmoil. And, and let's be very honest, this is actually part of our recent history as well. Think about, think about the end of all this. It is as late as 1989. How long ago was that? 30 years-ish? The, the trauma still lives very deeply in some people who are still alive today. They've, had, they've seen the political tides, you know, how it's ebbed and flowed and the kind of narrative that have, have been perpetuated since then. And even in the context of right now, when we look at uh, international politics, we look at places like Ukraine, things like NATO, and how easily scrutinized they are, the amount of information that's being transmitted on a day-to-day basis. We can't say that we're entirely divorced from these conversations. Mm-hmm. Very cool episode, Rolf. Thanks for like pulling it together. Yeah, man. Thank you for like a social studies lesson crash course. <laughs> if if we studied this, I wouldn't have fallen asleep at every social studies lesson. It's the role does it for we me. We need to do like a, a roving, like dramatic read of Singapore's history. It's called the LKY musical. Oh yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, Adrian, get me on, get me on. I'll do some writing for you. Well, I'm really glad we got to do this episode. I think it would not have made sense to continue as you explained if we did not tackle this important part in our history. And if you are curious about a lot of the other chapters that we kind of glossed over, go and read the history books. There's so much more stories that I think will excite you. On that note, I will see you in our next episode. We have a couple more episodes planned before the <gasps> end of our season, but we're almost at the end. So, you know, Thanks for joining us on the ride. Catch you guys. Don't forget to like, comment, subscribe.